Hey everybody, welcome to this week's roundup. I just want to give everybody a heads up that I have listed a bunch of random stuff on eBay and I will probably be listing a few more things over the course of the next few days. Just some random junk, some stuff retro related, some not, but if you're interested, I tried to price them all very competitively, if you will. I don't, I, I stink it sales. I'd much rather just get something in the right hands than try to make a profit on it. So check it out if you're interested. Uh, I also got a subwoofer for sale, but I don't want to sell that. I don't want to ship it. I think you would probably save money just buying it on Amazon new. I'll leave a link just because why not. But if you're local to the area and you're looking for a pretty good subwoofer that is not magnetically shielded, so keep it away from CRTs, please let me know. But uh, enough shameless shilling of my own stuff. Let's jump in and see what's been going on in the past week. First up, Todd from RetroFrog has just released a PC Engine to TurboGrafx-16 controller adapter that plugs into the front of the console and sits flush up against the console. So it's not a pigtail that dangles out. Now, all of these PC Engine to TurboGrafx or vice versa controller adapters should be pretty much flawless unless they're very badly built and the controller uh, cable pops out. So there's no worry about lag. There's no worrying about which one performs better. As long as it's a snug enough connection, then you're good to go. This is a matter of preference. So I wanted to share some alternatives because respectfully to everybody, there's no right answer for this. It's whatever you prefer for your setup. So if you wanted something like this, awesome. If not, one other alternative is to take a PC Engine multi-tap and then remove the cable from it and put in a TurboGrafx-16 extension cable, buy a junk third-party controller, but get the wire out from it and wire that in its place. And essentially, you could have a 4-to-1 PC Engine to TurboGrafx controller adapter. I'm also a fan of the adapters that are extension cables. So I sit just far enough away so that most of my controllers are don't have extra slack on it. So I do like having control or extension cables for those controllers. And in that scenario, I would really like to have something that was maybe a PC Engine controller to a PC Engine to TurboGrafx extension cable. However, it is my opinion, and this is just an opinion, you could feel free to completely disagree with this, that pigtail adapters usually drive me crazy. Now, in the case of the TurboGrafx, it would fit nicely into the port in front, and once your controller is plugged in, most people, including you, probably wouldn't notice the difference while you're playing. I just, when I'm unplugging the controller and I hang it up, uh, when I'm not using it, I just don't like to have a pigtail dangling out the end and I don't like to leave it at the end of my controller because if anybody saw my room tour I keep my controllers in a box way up high and let the controller cables dangle out so they don't crimp or or you know get that weird coily thing that happens to all old controllers so I just don't have a place to put them I hate having bins of pigtails it's just a maybe it's an OCD thing I'm okay with all of that so when I saw this I just thought that would be better for my personal setup, which means there's got to be a handful of other people out there that think so as well. So check out the post, check out all of the solutions that would be able to convert these back and forth and just know that as long as your controller actually plugs in and fits correctly, they're all going to perform the same because it's just a pin difference. It's not an actual conversion of anything. I just wanted to kind of lay this all out there for people that may not have understood all of that. I probably should open this section with, if you already know about the controller differences, skip it, but whatever. Hopefully you uh, took, a, took a fun trip down controller options for PC Engine and Turbo Graphics with me. 
Next up, developer Richard Wyke has just released an open source homebrew reverse engineered version of the N64 Game Shark. And this implements the original LZ9 FC17 Gall on an Altera FPGA, essentially making this an FPGA clone of the original Game Shark. And there is another version available that is a pro version that has a full parallel port functionality built in. So if you wanted to, you could take a broken Game Shark and transfer the the uh, card reader over to it as well. And this is one of those projects that at the moment for your average N64 user is not something that you'd probably want to chase down. I mean, no disrespect. Just give me a second here. Because, um, you know, Game Sharks are still really cheap and really available compared to a lot of other things in retro these days. I think the importance of this project is for development and obviously archiving that original uh, chip that's now in FPGA form. If you wanted to make your own, you absolutely could. I don't know of any stores making them. And my guess would be that if somebody did a run of production, they would be far more expensive than an original Game Shark used. But I absolutely love that the developer took the time to do this. And I believe they were working on other uh, Game Shark type devices as well. Because I'm not sure if anybody has reverse engineered the chips on those. The functionality, sure, but I don't know if anybody's actually done the FPGA implementation of it. So this is one of those things that today, my fellow nerds are probably gonna be nodding, going, well, that's really cool, but my gut is telling me that in the future, somebody's gonna be going back to this project and using it for things that we wouldn't even think about yet. So thank you very much to Richard for doing this. If any devs out there wanna take a look, uh, all of the links are everywhere you need it, including links to an original N64 Game Shark, if I just, N64 Game Shark, if I just, uh, you know, sparked your interest in that. But from, uh, at the moment, I think I'm just recognizing this as a very awesome development accomplishment, and I wanted to give shout-outs for that. But, you know, also curb expectations and stuff like that. There isn't going to be a $5 Game Shark clone available anytime soon, but we'll see, we'll see where the future brings for this. The developer Infidelity has just released a major update to the Zelda NES to SNES port, and there's a bunch of really cool stuff in here. First, you're able to cycle through weapons on your second button, your sword is always the same, using the L and R triggers without entering the menu. You could just be walking around, and if you hit the triggers, you could scroll between weapons that way, which is not only a really handy feature, but this takes this project immediately now beyond a port, and it adds a lot of extra functionality because the code needed to be digged into you know, this isn't just a trivial thing where you would add a flag for it. And you know, this is now digging into modifying the ROM, which I think is awesome. And a really cool, you know, creature comfort that they probably would have had it in the original if it were officially ported to the SNES. Next is probably my favorite update, though. If you hit pause just by hitting select and then you use just the left and right arrow on your D-pad, you could toggle between different color palettes. And this is huge because the NES generated its colors in com composite video, which means whichever TV you had and whichever chip it was using to decode composite into RGB, that would have its basically its own look to it. So all of those arguments throughout the years of people who insisted they remembered it one way on their personal TV, a lot of them might have all been correct because they might have actually been remembering it the exact way that their TV had processed the image. So it's always such a hard thing to figure out what's the best palette for the NES. And my personal opinion on this is while I mostly use the Kitrinx palette, I switch 
on a per game basis usually. So that's the one I, I normally use, you know, for everything. But every once in a while, depending on the display, I might switch. So on a flat panel, I'll probably always stick with that. But on an RGB monitor, very often I'll find myself switching over to the Sony CXA palette or a bunch of the Firebrand X ones. I think I always really loved the smooth palette. So that's why it's so important that Infidelity added this, because if you're playing on a CRT and you're remembering this from when you were a kid, then you're probably going to want it the way you remember it. And on the flip side, if you've never played this game before, there just might be a palette that really is more appealing to your eye or just stick with a Kittrinx one, because I think that one uh, that one is very, very accurate to what the colors probably should have been. So that's another massive update. Also, CD quality MSU1 sound is now available for it. And that means because the developer Infidelity already did all of the work of getting the soundtrack in, now we could have people, uh, the Zeldix forum is usually the place to go for this, but now we could have people add whatever other soundtrack they want to this. It's a little challenging, but not nearly as hard as actually adding the MSU functionality to begin with. So that means people could do things like take the original Famicom soundtrack, which was different, and hopefully use the right console revision and hopefully use MD4EA approved equipment, but you could technically rip the Famicom soundtrack and then have it as CD quality audio piped into this. You just would have to have somebody do the work to do it. Or you could port any other version of the soundtrack over. Somebody else had already ported just the Overworld soundtrack from the BS Zelda game, which I thought was a pretty cool touch. But that's another thing where there is no right or wrong answer. It's whatever your ears prefer. So if you are hoping to get another soundtrack for this one, maybe look into what it takes to get this done and see if you want to contribute to the project. And hosting the audio file should be pretty easy places. So that is another one that, is, you know, it's another factor I think is pretty awesome. And in order to enable MSU1 audio, all you have to do is start the game and you get to choose between them right, at, right before the main title screen. And it's the same save game file. So if you want to play through some of the game with the original soundtrack, hit save, you know, start from the beginning and not the beginning, start from, you know, where you, where you left off and then switch over to the MSU soundtrack. You could do that, which is absolutely awesome. And on top of that, Infidelity used what he learned on this to add some other updates to the previous two games, Mega Man 2 and 4. So this is really just, you know, I keep trying to politely remind people that if you want more stuff like this, we have to support the developers. We have to make sure to, you know, put our money where our mouth is, if you will. And stuff like this really makes me feel like my Patreon money is well spent because I was happy with just the release that I live streamed. But now with all of this extra stuff, it's just like all I could see is what comes next. And while I would love to see more conversions, I would also love to see other people pick up the slack and start doing some other bigger, bigger scoped projects. And one of them that I think would be amazing and it's going to be a ton of work. So if nobody does it, I don't blame them. But I would love to see BS Zelda's graphics and map ported over to this and maybe even have the ability to press Y and bring up or X or Y and bring up a map just like in A Link to the Past, but with the original Zelda map or, you know, the BS Zelda version of it. That's a massive undertaking, though. It's like a full game rewrite. It's probably take a year to do. But I'm just saying now that the groundwork is here, that is way more of a possibility than it was before. Uh, the only other way you'd be able to do it before is just to continue working on BS Zelda to use the A Link to the Past engine, whereas this is 
using the original Zelda engine to run it. So there's so much potential for what could be done next on this. So I just hope that we see more of these. I hope that we see um, people jump on and really check out what it is uh, uh, that is being done here and what they could do to these now that it's out. So if you want more info, I have some examples of the color palette differences here. Just click on them for full-size views, and you can see the very, very large difference between some of these palettes. I mean, it's it's pretty massive. Uh, you know, even if you're slightly colorblind like I am, you could still see massive differences between these. So, uh, you know, check that out if you're interested. Also, if you're not familiar with what these are and you're wondering why would anybody go from NES to SNES, I talked about that last time. I don't want to ramble anymore, so I left a link to the discussion from last time. And if you want to see this port in action, I have my full live stream here of it linked. So just thanks very much to all of you for for sticking with this and for understanding how awesome this is. And of course, thanks to Infidelity for doing this because what an awesome way to play Zelda now. Next up, CableMaker Fide is now selling an S-Video adapter that's compatible with JVC RGB monitors, CRT monitors, obviously, that have a very specific uh, seven-pin YC input. So it essentially just takes S-Video over a different connector. So Fide has made just a pigtail adapter cable for it. The price is $30 plus shipping, and it's my very strong opinion that if you have one of these JVC monitors and it doesn't have RGB inputs, this is a very, very large upgrade. Uh, I think the general consensus from everybody is that going from composite to S-Video is a much bigger step up in sharpness than S-Video to RGB. Obviously, if you have RGB inputs, you know, go with that, but unless your console doesn't support it. If you want to use an unmodded 3DO, a CDI, uh, you know, a VCR that has S-Video output, this is definitely something that you should get. Uh, now, the model that FIDE has listed is TM-1500PS, but... I'm 99.9% .9 sure that any JVC monitor that has the same ports that I have pictured right here in the post, it would work with. Just make sure to set the switch to 75 ohm and not open. That way it terminates it. Otherwise it would be way too bright. Unless you want to use this as a loop through and buy two of these adapters and have S-Video going into this and then out of this into something else for either a flat panel or a streamer, so that way you don't need a powered splitter, then you would set that to open. That would be totally cool. However, you would need a different output cable. Fide said he could do it. You just have to send him an email and, or a message through the eBay store and say, I want one input and one output or something, and it should be about the same price. So uh, all of their details are right here in the description as well as a link to it. And also, Fide, am I pronouncing your name right? <laughs> Sorry if I'm not. I hate when I get it wrong, but I'm trying. Humble Bazooka has just released a 3D printed shell for Crix's EDFX, which is that absolutely awesome AV adapter that plugs into any Turbo Graphics or PC Engine console that has the pins in the back. The price is $15 plus shipping, and you could choose your color scheme based on which console you have. So if you have a white PC engine, if you have the darker gray or lighter gray PC engine or just the turbo graphics, the color scheme should match enough where it would kind of blend in. It's not going to be a perfect match for, you know, 30 plus year old injection molded plastic, but the look and feel is definitely going to be there. And, you know, this is a case. 
So it's not like a performance upgrade, but I do think it looks better than the Plexi shell. You know, there's always that argument of you can keep dust out, which is nice. So overall, you don't need this, but I would want it. I think it looks really cool. So uh, <clears throat> at the moment, uh, Stone Age Gamer is selling this and Crix is still selling the EDFX. So you'd have to buy them from two different places. Hopefully Stone Age Gamer could just get stock of all of that at some point soon just to make it easier for people to order. But I really like it. I'm really glad it's available. And if you want more info on the EDFX, check out the post and then check out the other live stream I did because at the moment it is my absolute go-to recommendation for plug-and-play devices that get composite and RGB out from the Turbo Graphics and PC Engine. It's really well-priced. It gets you everything that you would need, and the only one out there that could arguably give you more functionality would be the engine block, which is Renee's that also outputs S-Video and uh, has a couple of extra options for output. But this one, the EDFX, also allows for stereo audio via the Turbo EverDrive Pro, whereas the engine block, I think it could probably be redesigned to accommodate that, accommodate that, but I don't think it does at the moment. So right now, this is definitely my go-to for plug-and-play adapters. Uh, there are some internal ones that are great as well. Check out Tito's video about the one that Zaxor did, but for plug-and-play, this is probably the one you want. Retro Fighters have just opened pre-orders on another run of the first controller that they ever made, the Jab, which is both an NES and USB controller. The price is $25 plus shipping, and they should arrive at customers within a month. This one's kind of interesting, and I kind of have some thoughts on it. And the good is I could completely understand if you like the shape and feel of Retro Fighters controllers. You want two thumb buttons two triggers and two analog sticks, as well as a D-pad, and you're gonna be using it as a USB controller and an NES controller. So there are definitely people who are gonna look at this and go, oh, that's definitely for me because I'm gonna be using it for A, B, C, D, whatever else. But as an NES controller, does anybody need an NES controller with two analog sticks that, you know, one of them that controls the buttons and stuff like that? I don't I don't really know. Uh, and that one's gonna be up to you. Uh, the other thing too is, they still haven't listed latency of any of their controllers. Pork has on the Mr. Add-ons website and the latency sheet, thankfully, but it would still be nice to see controller manufacturers post this because this is also their first controller ever. So have they changed USB controller chipsets? Have they updated it? Has there been tweaks to it? So I would like more information about this. Also, oddly enough, it's not compatible with the analog NT Mini. Uh, if you could afford one of those, you could probably afford a bag a bag full of NES controllers. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I had to, I can't not be a dick when it comes to that stuff sometimes. Yeah, sorry, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I like it. I think it's cool. It's not for me, but I definitely wanted to talk to about it at least for a quick minute because I guarantee that people who are watching or listening right now are like, oh yeah, I love Retro Fighters controllers. It'd be perfect on my NES or Mister through emulation. So I wanted to mention it. Uh, links are all there if you want to purchase. But uh respectfully, I'm going to skip this one. I like the original NES controller. All right, I'm going to skip to the end real quick, then I'm going to go back and explain. If you have a time sleuth and you haven't been able to get readings out of some LCD monitors, even after messing with the brightness, take a piece of standard printer paper, stick it between the time sleuth and the monitor, and try it again. If that doesn't work, try lowering the brightness, and that might fix it. 
So that's really it, but there's some backstory to it that my fellow nerds would definitely find interesting. If you don't care, please skip to the next section. But I did a live stream last Saturday that I had like a deep technical stream planned and I just was like, I'm not in the mood. I want to do something fun today. So my friend Chris donated two monitors for me to test. I did a whole bunch of testing on them. And one of them was an older Dell LCD monitor that had every input. So I was really curious to see how much latency it had, which it was fine. It was really more of a test monitor, but I couldn't get latency readings on it. So Greg from Laser Bear happened to be on stream and said, try putting a piece of paper in between. I said, all right, well, I already took out my polarizing filter for my camera. I have one of those adjustable ones that you could twist the end just like a focus ring, but it makes it darker or lighter. So I said, well, let me try this first just in case. And I tried that and it did nothing. So I said, all right, well, I guess I'll try Greg's trick, put the piece of paper in and it worked immediately. So I put the other monitor back that I couldn't get any reading on whatsoever. Same thing, put the paper back, no reading, but then I just turned down the brightness a tiny bit. And it worked perfect through all the inputs, throughout the entire rest of the stream. All it was, was just adding that piece of paper and lowering the brightness. It acted as a diffuser. So that way I was able to get a more accurate reading. Now, I do realize that sometimes the how the brightness is configured might affect latency a tiny bit. I don't mean to be rude, but if you're testing an older beat-up LCD monitor like this one, you probably shouldn't expect the best latency anyway. Although this had 9 milliseconds, which is respectable, definitely. So, you know, uh, well, 9 milliseconds through most inputs. It had 40 through the analog inputs and when 15 kilohertz signals were sent to it. So yeah, it definitely had its use case there. But I just really wanted to share this because this was one of those things that just makes me so happy. Like I'm just kind of messing around with friends on stream, testing some stuff, learning some things for me, but sharing it with people. And we just stumbled across a trick that will help everybody that owns a time sleuth. You know, all just because Greg threw out a suggestion and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give that a try. Why not? So thank you, Greg. <laughs> thank you, everybody in the streams who hangs out with me and, and keeps me company and motivates me to, to keep doing these, even though I'm sure they get very boring sometimes. So you're all awesome. And if you have a time sleuth, give a piece of paper a try. Nicole just posted a pretty cool technical write-up on her Nicole Express blog about the SG-1000 console from Sega. That was their first console, and the basis of it was also used for some arcade games. So the summary of it's on RetroRGB. If you're uh, you know, not super nerdy, you might want to just scroll through this. Uh, if you are a fellow nerd that wants to dig into this stuff, definitely go to the main blog post and see. But here's kind of the, the full gist of it. Those games that are based on that original chipset, can be modified to run on an SG-1000. And this is one of those, why are you doing it, because we can type of things, but it's actually pretty neat. All you need to do is remap some of the memory on it, so you could make your own cartridge. If there's a flash cartridge out there, you could use that. And that would just work. So like, for example, if Crix ever did an SG-1000 ROM cart, you should just be able to uh, patch the ROMs and have it run that way, with one exception. The SG-1000 doesn't have a start button or a select button, so you can't, you can't have a way to start the game. However, one of the chips in there that does, uh, the, that's used to read the controllers has extra pins that aren't being used. So if you wanted to, you could just attach buttons to those pins, and that would act as your coin and test inputs. So this is one of those really neat things that, you know, with all the love and respect to Nicole, 
most of us aren't going to do, but I have a feeling that most old school Sega fans are really going to appreciate that this was discovered and that it was the same chips and probably read at the very least the retro RGB post, but you know, would probably be a good idea to dig into Nicole's post on this. So I, I really appreciate these deep dives and the knowledge that I've, I've gained from just going through these. So thanks to Nicole for continuing to do these. And what a very cool find. You know, this isn't this isn't going to change the arcade world forever, but it's definitely going to make a lot of nerds think like, hmm, I wonder what other similarities are out there that we could kind of dig into. So very cool post. Thanks, Nicole. Retro Gamer Store has just opened pre-orders on an original color NES shell or two-color NES shell, as well as two more transparents. And there's some news on the Genesis 2 shell. So I'm going to skip to the end first, and there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about because I'm a huge fan of these things. But here's what you need to know. First, if there aren't more pre-orders placed for the Genesis 2 shell before September, that project's going to get canceled and everybody's going to get refunded. Everyone will be refunded all of their money. I want to be very clear about that. So as Retro Gamer Store has always said, these things have to have a minimum order in order for it to actually happen. And if not, then the whole project has to be canceled. So I always say we have to vote with our dollars or wherever you live, whatever your money's called. Because, you know, it's one thing to show interest in these, but it's another to, to not actually buy them. And if we don't want it, that's fine. That's okay. I'm not like shaming the community for not buying these. But if you are on the fence about it, if you're like, yeah, I definitely want one, but I'll wait till they're in stock or, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll wait till next month. Definitely step up to the plate and buy it to see if we can get to the minimum order quantity. And if not, then that's fine. That just means not a lot of people wanted it, not enough to generate interest. So that that's cool too. But if you're on the fence, definitely step up the plate right now. On to the NES side of things. The single biggest complaint I have ever heard about retro game restore shells is that they look great, but I want the original. I love the way the original console looks. I love the look and feel. Can they make some of those? And Martin has decided, yeah, let's try this with the NES shell. Two-tone, just like the original uh, toaster. The only real difference is it's not going to have the lettering because obviously the name Nintendo is an intellectual property. So we'll need to have some creative members of the community, local to everybody, local to your own country, make those. That way nothing's crossing into borders with uh, somebody else's name on it. And that and there is already a notch in back to make it very easy to cut out for an SNES multi-out should you want to install an NES RGB into it. But other than that, it is exactly like the original, and I think that's absolutely awesome, and I hope so many people pre-order this because I would love to see these for all original, all original colors for all of the other shells that they make as well. So definitely, once again, if you want one of these, put your money where your mouth is because we need to get these made so that we could also get them for the others. I'm not going to go on a rant this time about why they're worth the money they are. Please just check out any other podcast I've done where I talked about Retro Gamer Store. They're not cheap, but they're not overpriced. You get exactly what you pay for with these. Now, there's also a clear purple or transparent purple and transparent red available. And I'll talk about those in a bit, but that's it. That's, that's what you need to know about these. Three new shells, of uh, NES shells available. Pre-order if you want. 
and get the Genesis 2 shells pre-orders, pre-orders in now or they probably won't happen. But to talk just a little bit more about this, I did a live stream with Russ Lyman, who is a friend of mine who also does very beautiful paint jobs on these. I've featured Russ's work a few times before. I've certainly tweeted about him and stuff like that. But I wanted him here to talk about these shells with me and to get his opinions on what you could do with them and show off some of his other work. And we kind of went through all of them. And the new Smoke Transparent that Retro Gamer Store opened pre-orders for a while back looked absolutely beautiful. Once again, I, I couldn't tell which one I liked better, the, just the clear, clear or the smoke clear. But they also sent the, the transparent purple one. And just like with the SNES, I loved it. I was so surprised. I didn't think I would like it. I'm not really a purple guy. I like blue and black. Obviously, I've worn the same style black shirt every podcast for the past 10 years. <laughs> Clearly, that's one of my favorite colors. But once again, it really just shocked me how much I liked it and how cool it looked, especially when uh, we had certain cartridges inserted. It just made the labels of the cartridges look awesome or even just the transparent EverDrive shells. So that was very, very impressive. And the other one that we tested was an all-white ABS plastic version. And that would probably be what would be used for the original colored one, as well as any of the other models of, uh, you know, Genesis, SNES, if we're lucky enough to, to have Retro Game Restore offer those in original colors as well. And it, both types of plastic felt really high quality, no squishy bendy junk here. These were solidly built, but it did actually kind of feel a little more like original plastics. So it's a perfect fit for the paint colors or maybe not, um, not paint colors, the plastic dye colors. Sorry, please nobody think these are painted. They're not painted. <laughs> but so I thought that was really cool. And it was great to see the quality of those. And even though it was a, a pre-production sample, so there were scuffs and stuff on it, the quality of the plastic was evident. You know, if you pick them up and squeeze them, it doesn't feel like a child could snap them into pieces. They feel like heavy duty pieces of plastic like the originals. So that was a really good sign as well. Plus, it was a blast listening to Russ's opinions on these. I gave him the white one to take with him, and I think he's going to turn it into a Stormtrooper NES. I just I thought that was awesome. One other thing I did want to mention, though, does anybody know of aftermarket power and reset buttons for the original NES? Because when we did some of these demos, we kind of noticed that if you have an all-clear shell or any kind of the transparent and black buttons but gray or uh, black controller inputs, but gray buttons. Wow, I'm sharp today, huh? Uh, it, it looked cool still, but we wondered how it would look in all black. And somebody in the chat even mentioned that the original NES Zelda commercial showed an NES with black buttons and red lettering. So it would be very awesome if somebody made those available, even if they were painted with stickers or something like that. If they were well done, I think that would be really cool. So does anybody know anything about those? Retro Gamer Store said they'd look into them, but uh, if there's something already out there, maybe we could paint those and, and just see how they look with the rest of it. But either way, thanks to Russ, thanks to Retro Gamer Store, and thanks to everybody who wants to pre-order these, because I, I really would love to see these become a thing and, and really make uh, both the transparent and the original color shells available. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to just skim right through these, and if you hear of anything that piques your interest, please check out Lou's video where you'll find a lot more details, visual examples, etc. Looks like RMC posted an image of an inoperable prototype PCB for the arcade game Lemmings, and a Track 17 recognized some of the custom chips and believes it could be a candidate for the upcoming RoboCop 2 core. So they're in contact, and that looks like it could be a pretty cool find. 
Next up, Adam Gastonow's new new game and watch core has been released, and it even supports Tiger Electronic handhelds. In this release, there's a total of 89 supported titles. That's pretty cool. Robert updated the progress of the N64 FPU and let us know that 83% of the tests are now passing. There's only three instructions left to be implemented. That's progressing really fast. Awesome work, as always. Pramod showed some more progress for the NARC core. On Twitter, he posted a video showing the core getting past the self-test, booting the game, and showing the high score screen. Eventually, the screen starts glitching out, but that's awesome progress. SRG320 posted the latest updates to the Sega Saturn core. It's under heavy development. There's no official builds yet. However, you could get user compiled builds or compile your own. Uh, And there's a bunch of different changes for the VDP1, a fix for the VDP2, and a fix for the CPU as well. So that's pretty awesome. I can't wait to try out a fully functional Saturn core. No rush on that. Just expressing uh, how excited I am to give that a try. Next up, the Neo Geo CD Work in Progress Core has been updated uh, with a bunch of other uh, features being added to it like Unibios and CDZ support. And I think that's very cool because there's only a small handful of games that are worth playing over the original Neo Geo originals, but they're still worth playing. So it's really awesome people are taking the time to do that. And Hotego has added Crime Fighters to the JT Aliens core, and also Haunted Castle has been promoted to a public release. So as usual, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get access to all of the betas in whatever form they're currently in, and whenever they are good enough to be released to the public, everybody gets them for free. Uh, Not everybody likes that business model. I wholeheartedly support it. It's just my opinion. So I think that's absolutely awesome. And I finally got a chance to play Super Contra, and it was very cool being able to play that on the vertical arcade machine here. So thanks very much, Otago, for doing that. And especially, also, in the context of right now, thank you for Lou for doing all of these, because there's no way I could keep up with all of this. And it's so awesome to just have everything all in one place so I could know what's been going on in the mystery community. So thanks again, Lou. Much appreciated. Lastly, I just finished a stream where I was testing some adapters from Antonio Valenia. The adapters are first a JAMA adapter that allows you to interface controls and video and audio through it to your JAMA cab, but I also tried an IO board and a Raspberry Pi adapter that allowed you to interface both of those through it as well. I'm going to have a full write-up by the time next week's podcast hits. I just wanted to let everybody know that all of the testing came out great. I had no problems with it. There were a few suggestions and things you might need to know, but certainly nothing that would say don't buy it. What's left is to follow up with Antonio on some of those questions and to do a a real lag test on it using the Mr. Lag Test equipment. I'm sure the lag test result is going to come out fine, but before I do an official post on it, I want to make sure that I you know, dot all my I's and cross all my T's, if you will. So if you want a real live step-by-step process of setting these things up with a million mistakes, all mine, not Antonio's, check out the live stream. But if you don't have time for that stuff, or uh, if me making constant mistakes annoys you, then just wait for the post. I'll summarize absolutely everything in the post, and it'll be a quick read. But I know a lot of people do like to see the live streams, and I never mind making mistakes with this stuff. I uh, I, I never mind doing that in real time, because if it's something I could make, then it's a mistake anybody else could as well. But So far, everything I found about the adapters worked great. It was just configuration stuff, and I got to confirm a few more things with Antonio. So I think it's a pretty cool solution, though, for people that want to have a Mr. and a Raspberry Pi and maybe even a main PC and easily swap between them on a console or on an arcade cabinet. But anyway, check out the post probably by the time next week's podcast airs.
Before I go, I just wanted to confirm there are no issues with the new analog consoles, the last revision, uh, latest revision of the Super NT and Mega SG. What my guesses last week were mostly correct. If you don't care about this stuff, please just close the podcast. There's nothing after this. If you were nerd curious as to what this was all about, there's a very valid explanation. Uh, so I'll just kind of quickly run through that now. But this last run of, of these two consoles that were made that are shipping to customers right now, because of the part shortage, there had to be some hardware changes that didn't take any functionality away at all, but it requires different code to talk to this different hardware. So people were receiving their units, and the latest jailbreak firmwares weren't released yet. But they were never released on launch day for these because whatever mysterious FPGA coder that is inside info but is definitely not coming from analog just hasn't gotten to it yet. So when people tried to put on the older firmware, it wasn't being allowed to. So then all of the rumors from the trolls started about how analog is locking their functionality and they're taking things away from you. And that's absolutely not true. You could, for all of the previous runs of consoles, you could put whatever firmware you want on there, new or old. You can't put an older firmware on this run because that firmware doesn't know that that newer hardware is there. So it would look for older hardware and crash. So that's why they don't let you put that firmware on. But let's just say there's five more firmwares released between now and next year. You could go between all of those up or down. That There's no locking down. It's just simply because the older code doesn't know that newer hardware or the changed hardware exists. So nobody's locking anything down. It's getting the same functionality as all the rest. It's not adding any functionality, but it should eventually get it. One other thing, I just want to make sure I get my, my naming correctly, because when OpenFPGA was released, a bunch of YouTubers called it a jailbreak, and it's very frustrating because that was not it. It's insulting to the OpenFPGA devs, and it's frustrating for talking about this stuff. But when we talked about jailbreaking, quote-unquote jailbreaking, in the context of analog consoles, the NT Mini had a jailbreak that had all of Kevin's cores available in it. That was part of the other reason why they justified the high cost. It wasn't just the overpriced all-aluminum shell, which would have been an amazing price for a console if they made it cheaper without that but you got all of that extra stuff with this wink wink nudge nudge it wasn't us here's all the cores kevin made on it but with the super nt and the mega sg the jailbreak functionality only allowed you to use genesis and snes roms and i believe with snes you didn't even get special chip functionality so most people probably ended up with a rom card anyway for those so that's what we mean by jailbreaking, just simply having the exact same functionality. There's no open FPGA on this. There's no open FPGA on the Duo, uh, which I, I still think looks awesome, and I'm really looking forward to trying that out. But So basically, Analog did nothing wrong. And I know a lot of people think I, I don't like the company. It's not that. I'm extra hard on them because nobody else is. It seems like I'm the only one, but I'm also extra blunt when they do good things. And I'm, I'm just... Maybe I'm missing something, but based on all the knowledge I have, they did everything right this time. Everything. And maybe this mysterious developer didn't get to the jailbreak as fast as people would have liked, but I'm 100% you know, thinking that Analog did the right thing. They got the hardware out to customers. They didn't jack any prices up or anything. You know, the premium shipping is still just as premium. There's, there's no changes here. So uh, great job on Analog's part. Uh, I'm hoping that the next line of products they come out with or have a new and fun functionality to them. But 
if you've bought that last run, you got nothing to worry about. But anyway, thank you to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially people who support in absolutely any way possible, because it is you who is sponsoring this podcast, whether it's clicking on affiliate links or signing up for the monthly services, which are really what helps the most. It is you who is making all of this happen. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.